Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Thank you at home for joining me tonight. This time of year, four years ago, Democrats were preparing to impeach Donald Trump for withholding aid to Ukraine in an attempt to get political dirt on Joe Biden. Republicans were, not surprisingly, outraged. But there was one Republican congressman in particular who had a very specific reason for opposing Trump's impeachment, a reason that he repeated over and over and over. The founding fathers, the founders of this country warned against single party impeachment. They said that it would be bitterly divisive, perhaps irreparably divisive for the country. The founders of this country warned us against a single party impeachment because they feared it would bitterly and perhaps irreparably divide our nation. The founders of this country warned against a single party impeachment. You know why? You guys know why. Because they feared it would bitterly and perhaps irreparably divide our nation. The founding fathers warned us. I mean, they feared a single-party impeachment. They knew that it would bitterly divide the country. It might be irreparable damage to the country. The founding fathers warned us. No single-party impeachments. If an impeachment isn't bipartisan, it should not happen. So spoke the founding fathers. And that was the message from Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson. And Congressman Johnson was especially concerned about an impeachment happening the December before an election year. If you don't like the president, he goes on the ballot again after four years. We have an election in 11 months. Let the people decide this. Today, we are once again 11 months out from a presidential election. And Speaker Mike Johnson has decided that he wants to go ahead with a single-party impeachment of the sitting president. Today, Republicans in the House passed their impeachment resolution through the Rules Committee, and they plan to vote on that resolution in the full House as soon as tomorrow. But unlike the impeachment of Donald Trump, Republicans do not actually know what their impeachment is about. They have not actually found any conclusive proof of wrongdoing by President Biden. And now Speaker Johnson says... Well, that's the point. Speaker says the reason that Republicans need to impeach President Biden without evidence is because the administration has not helped them find that evidence. The impeachment inquiry is necessary now, as our as Whip Emmer just explained, because we've come to this impasse. The White House is impeding that investigation now. They're not allowing witnesses to come forward and thousands of pages of documents. So we have no choice. They have no choice. The White House isn't providing enough documents or witnesses, so the impeachment, it just has to go forward. I wonder what 2019 Mike Johnson would have to say about that. The Democrats could and should have just simply gone a few blocks away to a federal court to get an expedited court order compelling the extra documents and information they requested. That's what's always been done in the past, but they didn't do that here because these Democrats don't have time for it. They are trying to meet their own arbitrary, completely reckless and Machiavellian timeline to take down a president that they loathe. Mike Johnson 
is in way over his head right now. As he and the Republican Party barrel toward an unfounded impeachment inquiry, the entire world is waiting on this Congress to take action. Today, Ukrainian President Zelensky was in Washington, D.C. to meet with both President Biden and Speaker Johnson about desperately needed aid. Right now, Russia is ramping up its military offensive in Ukraine and what U.S. intelligence says is an attempt to undermine support for Ukraine in Western nations like this one. Democrats support sending Ukraine assistance immediately, but House Republicans under the leadership of Speaker Johnson have refused. They are instead demanding that Democrats agree to a series of extreme border policies before signing on to any Ukraine aid package. Policies like bringing back Trump-era COVID restrictions on immigration, mandating electronic monitoring of immigrants in the U.S., including children, and expediting deportations. So there are some huge looming issues right now. People's lives are hanging in the balance here. But as of this moment, Congress is scheduled to leave Washington at the end of this week, not to return until next year. Now, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is calling on Congress to stay in session through the next week. But there is no indication that Republicans will agree. Time is running out. And right now, their top priority is impeaching President Biden. But they can't really tell you or anyone why. Joining me now is former Speaker of the House, now Speaker Emerita, Emerita Nancy Pelosi. Thank you so much for being here, uh, Speaker Pelosi. It is wonderful to have you anytime, but especially in a moment like this when we're trying to make sense of what exactly is going on with your colleagues across the aisle. I wonder what you think of this impeachment push and whether the GOP is trying to render the concept of impeachment effectively meaningless. Well, thank you. It's nice to be with you, Alex, especially at this difficult time for our country, when we have so many needs that we have to meet, so many challenges to democracy in Ukraine and in our own country, and that the speaker is going down this path. He says he has no choice. The fact is, he has no respect. No respect for the Constitution of the United States, no respect for his own members, who are at, whom he's asking to vote for an impeachment with no basis with no basis. Uh, you referenced when we impeached the president a number of years ago because of his uh, uh, refusal to implement the—send the aid to Ukraine uh, that was voted by Congress and he was supposed to send, but was threatened to withhold it unless he got certain favors done for him uh, by President Zelensky. And, but he said to me, what's the problem with the call? It was a perfect call. Yes, it was perfectly— impeachable. And so they have no basis. And so there's, their excuse for having no basis is they have no basis. And yet they're saying to these people, nearly 20 of them, maybe 18 of them are in districts that President Biden won. So it's going to be a hard sell for them to go home and say why they went down this careless path. Yeah, I but wanted it's to— most unfortunate. And I want to say one more thing. You, you ran all the statements that he made about you shouldn't have a one-party impeachment. Well, our founders knew that we could possibly have a rogue president, but they didn't think we'd have a rogue Congress at the same time. And in addition to that, Stanley Hoyer mentioned this on the floor this evening in our special order on Ukraine— this speaker, a few Congresses ago, uh, introduced a bill that said you can't have more than one subject in a bill. 
and yet he's putting immigration on the Ukraine bill. I just want to follow up on something you mentioned, which is the, the, the cliff that it appears Speaker Johnson is leading his Biden district Republicans over on this impeachment inquiry vote. I mean, Kevin McCarthy, when he was speaker, if you can remember, it, was, it happened very quickly. It was over before it began in many ways. But mm -hmm. in his speakership, he at least understood the political reality that it would not be good for those, quote unquote, centrist Republicans to vote on a Biden impeachment. Speaker Johnson does not seem to understand the political reality of that. What fortune awaits those, those Republicans who vote yes? Well, they've made a decision to go all out with Donald Trump. Donald Trump has instigated this, encouraged it further, and uh, now they're all just going down the Donald Trump path. And that's not a good path in some of these districts. We fully in intend to win the House in this, next, uh, in this next election. But in the meantime, we have plenty of work to do. Instead of this impeachment, well, what do, what do they have to offer? Uh, former—I don't like to even call him President Trump in the same sense, but the former occupant occasionally of the White House would say, we've got to overturn the Affordable Care Act. Others will say we have to pass a, a total ban on abortion in our country. These are the kinds of things they have in store for women and families. These are the kind of kitchen table issues that they have in store should they win, which they must not. But in the meantime, to keep people distracted and to look effective to their base—this is red meat to their base—look effective to their base, let's impeach the president for no basis, no respect for the Constitution, no respect for the office of president, and certainly no respect for the House of Representatives and their own members. Yeah, I want to focus on that last bit, the, the lack of respect for the actual office that these Republicans hold. This, this Congress is on track to be this—I think it's the second least productive Congress in modern American history. And, you know, a lot of excuses are made for that on, on the right, which is, oh, it's a slim majority, et cetera, et cetera. You, you were Speaker of the House with a very slim majority and managed to get many things done. What would your advice to the current Speaker of the House be if he wanted to get anything done? Well, in addition to what some of those Republicans have said about their slim majority, some of them have been bragging that they've sent all these bills over to the Senate. They're ridiculous bills that are never going to see the light of day. But as some of them said, we've done a lot of things. One of them, one of the staff persons said, well, we sent a letter and then we got the mask mandate removed. And we sent a letter uh, about this or that, and now we're going to have a hearing on it. Uh, their, their standard for accomplishment is very low, but they're anti-governance. And if you remember that they're anti-governance, this is a good thing for them because they're accomplishing nothing. I do wonder— uh, in, Nothing in, good. Nothing good. Yeah. And you mentioned some of the priorities for the, these Republican lawmakers. In a vacuum, the most egregious things really stand out. Among them, their war on reproductive freedom and the most recent comments from their titular head, their, not their, their, their informal head, their frontrunner, <clears throat> Donald Trump, who wants to replace Obamacare. Yes, what imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> imagine well, he that. Did that. He, yeah, he—, he uh, when he was president, he said repeal and replace. He had no replacement. He just wanted to repeal. And he was defeated. And he was defeated, not by just our inside maneuvering, but by the outside mobilization, the grassroots people, the people who benefit, the millions of people who benefited 
from the Affordable Care Act. It wasn't about them talking about provisions. It was them talking about their personal experience. And that's what we intend to do. We've already launched the same campaign we did then. Uh, we'll come full bloom around Martin Luther King weekend to, again, have the outside mobilization to protect the Affordable Care Act, which has brought care to millions, nearly 20 million more people in our country, and, again, benefits, including the, uh, the, uh, uh, well, the most important one that affects so many people is a pre-existing condition, the benefit of saying, if you have a pre-existing condition, no longer can you be deprived of, of care. If you have—and we have no more term— time limits, whether it's annual or lifetime time limits, the list goes on about the benefits that would be overturned as well. This is, these are kitchen table issues, as are the issue that you referenced earlier about a woman's right to choose, the kitchen table issue. It's an economic issue, all of it, for families about their health and their financial well-being, about their freedom. We fight for democracy here in our country. We felt the Ukrainians are fighting for it there. We are fighting for freedom here, whether it's freedom to, for LGBT community, what, whatever the freedom is that people want to read a book, freedom to even read a book, for your child to read a, books in school that had been classics and are now burned. Something tells me that um, former Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi is ready to talk book bans, women's bodies and health care as much as Republicans will let her. Speaker Nancy Pelosi, it is an honor and a thrill to have you on the program. Thanks for making some time tonight. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. But remember, the longer they take for Ukraine, more people will die, more women will be raped, more children will be kidnapped, and it'll be all on them. We have to get them to move. Thank you for giving some exposure, some more exposure to this issue tonight. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for all you do. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Joining me now is New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg. Michelle, it's great to, to see you here to sort of unpack what we just talked about. Um, the first, the well, there's so many things to talk about. First, the impeachment push as Zelensky is effectively begging hat in hand mm -hmm. for the U.S. Congress to do something about an incredibly desperate situation over in Ukraine. I mean, the cynicism to me is astounding. I wonder if you think it resonates the way that it, it can and should with the American public. Well, I think the American public is so polarized yeah. that I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think there is still a middle. I think there are on Ukraine aid specifically. I do think that there are people who are right leaning who are inspired by the heroism of the Ukrainian people. Absolutely. But, you know, one function of Donald Trump has been to polarize a lot of the Republican Party in favor of Vladimir Putin. And there's a connection between this incredibly cynical impeachment push and the decree increasing willingness of Republicans to support Ukraine. Because, you know, it's true that we can't quite articulate what Republicans are impeaching Joe Biden for, yeah. which is telling. But at least part of the impeachment push is a resurrection of the same conspiracy theory that got Donald Trump impeached, right? Donald Trump was impeached for trying to strong arm Zelensky to implicate Biden if in this bogus corruption scandal. Now the Republicans are once again trying to implicate yes. Biden in this bogus corruption scandal and sort of um, act as if Donald Trump's um, accusations had been legitimate. And that is part of the same sort of they're caught up in this anti-Ukrainian propaganda, both in terms of impeachment, but then also much more seriously in terms of their willingness to abandon Ukraine at this critical junction in the war. Well, that, that they'll sacrifice lives 
for political gain, which we, by the way, saw during COVID. But this is just yet another example, even if they're not necessarily American lives. I do, I do have to ask you about the impeachment push because I feel like you give actual, like some strategic credit to Republicans <laughs> in this, and that there's like a common thread between Trump's impeachment and Biden's. I, I, I really do worry that the more you say Biden was impeached and Trump was impeached, it renders the, the, the sort of the gravity of it somewhat meaningless. Well, that's why they're doing it. Yes. And, and I, I worry that it's going to be quite effective, actually. Yeah, I do, too, because, again, I think that, you know, there's first. Yes, people will say, well, they were both accused of different things. I mean, it's very clear that the reason that and I think some of the Republicans have said this. We want to give Trump ammunition to say, you know, two impeached presidents running against each other. And so, you know, just kind of lessen the gravity of his double impeachment. But at the same time, and yes, it's hard for people to keep straight. I mean, especially when it comes to Ukraine and Burisma and Viktor Shokin. And, you know, there's like all these foreign names and moving parts. And I think it does, it just, it, people become very cynical and just think they're all corrupt. Right. You know, they must have both done something. There must be something shady going on with Ukraine, which that then I think bleeds into, well, maybe it, maybe it makes sense that we've given them enough money. I, I wonder in terms of managing the funding to Ukraine, which seems warranted and, and desperately needed, whether it was a mistake, Speaker Pelosi, former Speaker Pelosi mentioned that it was a mistake to tie immigration into all of this. But it was President Biden who initially basically attached the immigration funding to the Ukraine funding and Gaza funding. What does that look like? It was a mistake now. I think it looks like it's given Republicans. Um, I mean, it's hard for me. I can't say whether it's a mistake because I can't say whether he would have got this funding right. in the absence of this. Right. But I do think that it's given them it's given Republicans this enormous leverage because negotiations are often about kind of who cares more. Mm -hmm. And they really don't care that much about Ukraine, if at all. They care a lot about the border. And so they are willing to you know, they are quite kind of quite willing to play chicken with the future of Ukraine as a nation if it means they're going to get the border funding. The sweetener is draconian border policy. Right. That's where the modern-day Republican Party is at. Michelle Goldberg, you're not done here yet. Please stay with me Thank because you. I want to bring you back in just a few minutes to talk about another massive story in tonight's news, and that is the nightmare in the state of Texas as elected officials and the state Supreme Court start directing reproductive health care. But first, the Supreme Court may soon be deciding whether Donald Trump is immune from prosecution. We're going to get the latest on that from Neil Katyal. That's next. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. That remark has followed Donald Trump ever since he first said it during the 2016 campaign. It followed him all the way to New York's Second Circuit Court of Appeals in 2019, where a judge cited that comment when asking Trump and one of his lawyers about the scope of presidential immunity as it pertained to a subpoena in a criminal investigation. At the time, Trump's lawyer tried to argue that a sitting president's immunity is absolute, that yes, Donald Trump could theoretically shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. That argument ultimately failed when the entire Supreme Court, including Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas, when they all agreed that just being president did not grant Trump the immunity he was seeking. But Donald Trump is trying a variation on this theme as part of his defense in special counsel Jack Smith's 2020 election interference case about allegedly criminal conduct he engaged in when he was still a sitting president. And now Jack Smith wants the Supreme Court to weigh in on this quickly. The Supreme Court has agreed to think about taking up this presidential immunity question on an expedited basis. And that goes against Trump's strategy of choice to do whatever he can to delay this trial. Joining me now is Neil Katyal, former acting solicitor general for the U.S. under the Obama administration, person who knows lots and lots about the high court. Neil, thank you for being here. And I am so eager to hear what your thoughts are and whether the Supreme Court actually takes this up on an expedited basis. So I think Jack Smith did the right thing by using this procedure called certiorari before judgment to bypass the Court of Appeals and to say to the Supreme Court, decide this now. I think the Supreme Court is going to decide it. Uh, I think they're going to agree to hear the case. And I think they will, if not unanimously, pretty darn close to it, rule against criminal defendant Donald Trump. And that's so for a couple of reasons. But the most important of which, Alex, is the extraordinary thing that Trump is trying to argue, which is that he can murder someone and get away with it, that that being president gives him a get out of jail free card. And here's where it's even more, it's even stronger claim than what he said last time in the Mazars case in which you were flashing before. There, he didn't say quite that he could get away with it. He said while he's a sitting president, he can't be investigated. But his lawyer was very clear saying, I'm not seeking permanent immunity. That is, once Trump leaves office, he could be prosecuted. Now, Trump is left office. Jack Smith is prosecuting him as a former president. You know, I know Trump thinks he's still the president, but he's not um, in the reality-based world. And the Supreme Court, I think, is going to say, how can it be that a former president has absolute immunity? That's just not American. Yes. Permanent immunity is not something America gives its presidents last I checked, but I'm not a Supreme Court justice. Neil, how does Trump's team respond to this? Because they actually have to file a response to Jack Smith's motion here. And it's an odd position for Trump to be in. Smith is effectively calling his bluff here, is he not? 
Exactly. So Trump has already issued some sort of social media statement saying that, you know, that it's the that Jack Smith is playing games, which is bizarre because if anything, and, you know, I've sat in the chair um, authorizing appeals for the government and making decisions about certiorari before judgment. The thing you always worry about when you try and bypass the Court of Appeals is that it'll look like you're trying to game the system, that you don't trust the Court of Appeals because of the composition of it here. The composition of the Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C. is overwhelmingly against Trump. It's all like basically rule of law people, um, which is, you know, by definition against Trump. Um, and Jack Smith is still saying, I want to bypass that court. And so, you know, there's no allegation of gamesmanship here. Um, it's just simply a matter of time, as Jack Smith said. And this is exactly what happened with the special prosecutor in the Nixon case in 1974. So I think Trump can try you know, with the filing next week. But I think it'll go just about as well as his merits argument will before the United States Supreme Court, should the court agree to hear the case. It'll look just like the Mazars one, which you flashed on the screen before, a unanimous loss for Donald Trump. We're pretty darn close to it. Neil, I, I, I've been really interested in the presidential immunity question here, not so much because I'm a legal scholar and I'm interested in testing the outside bounds of the law, but because it, it seems like it is a fairly effective delay mechanism for Trump, not because of its merits, but just because of the way the, the sort of courts work. And I wonder how real the threat is that the March 4th deadline could be pushed here, even if the Supreme Court takes us up on an expedited uh, uh on an expedited uh, calendar. Yeah, I think it's a realistic fear that the March 4th date will be pushed. The question is by how much. I think it's pretty easy for the Supreme Court to resolve this case. I mean, Donald Trump's lawyers are saying the Supreme Court's never decided whether a president has absolute immunity as a former president. That's because it's such a ridiculous question. I think it's easy for the court to decide it. And I think, you know, maybe it'll delay things by a few weeks, uh, but I don't think longer than that. This is not a hard case. Um, one more for you, Neil, in terms of what can happen while this is working its way through the courts. You know, there's talk of a stay that, of course, Trump would like, that Jack Smith has been pleading sort of against, if you will. How much can Judge Chuck can do while, uh, you know, SCOTUS and the district, the D.C. Circuit Court decide what they're going to do with this? Only a little bit. You know, I argued the Supreme Court case last year about this question, and basically the Supreme Court said that while a case is on appeal, much of it cannot go forward in the district court. Um, and so some things can, like the gag order and, you know, perhaps some discovery disputes and the like, but some cannot. And so that's another reason why Jack Smith was so smart to file this motion he did yesterday to bypass the Court of Appeals. Bluff calling from the special counsel. We will see what happens. Neil Katyal, person who knows the behavior of the high court better than most Americans. Thank you for your time tonight, my friend. Thank you. Much more ahead tonight, including the strangely tight grip Donald Trump has on evangelical voters. Tim Alberta, the new author of The Kingdom, The Power and the Glory, will join us to explain how this happened. But first, there is one case out of Texas that Republicans really, really, really don't want to talk about. Michelle Goldberg will be back to discuss that coming up next. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Yesterday, the Texas Supreme Court decided that Kate Cox, a woman with a life-threatening, non-viable pregnancy, did not qualify for a medical exception to the state's near-total ban on abortion, thereby overturning a district court ruling. And Cox, who could not wait any longer, had already left the state to seek an abortion. In a statement, Cox's lawyer responded, if Kate Cox can't get an abortion in Texas, who can? Now, Cox may have gotten her abortion, but this particular fight is not over. Far from it. There are hundreds of women like Kate Cox nearly dying from non-viable, life-threatening pregnancies in states where they are denied abortions. 20 of them have sued the state of Texas this year. They want the state Supreme Court to clarify the medical exemptions that are part of the state's abortion ban. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's office has argued that the law is already clear. But Kate Cox's case highlights the utter absurdity of that argument. In her latest column, New York Times opinion writer Michelle Goldberg interviewed Cox's lawyer, Molly Duane, who said, I think it's the clearest message you could have possibly received from an anti-abortion state that they never meant the medical exemption to mean anything at all. Joining me now is Michelle Goldberg, opinion columnist for The Times. Michelle, thanks for being here. Um, I am astounded and appalled by what has unfolded in Texas. Um, you write in your piece, right-wing politicians and those who support them would rather inflict unimaginable suffering on women than relax the tiniest bit of control over their medical decisions. I mean, you, you make the case that if they had actually relaxed their control over women's bodies, this actually could have played well for them in, in some scenario. Can you talk about yeah. that? Well, I think, you know, since almost as soon as the Dobbs decision came down, we started hearing these horror stories and they were inevitable. You've heard them in countries where abortion was illegal. It was obvious that it was going to happen here. You started hearing about women with wanted pregnancies that had gone horribly awry or miscarriages that were being totally mismanaged. You know, women being told that they had to wait until they were septic to be treated, that they had to wait until they were on the ber- on the verge of kind of losing a major bodily function in the language of some of these laws, even if it was inevitable that they were going to get there. And you had a lot of doctors feeling paralyzed and like they didn't know what they could do and when they would face pers- prosecution. And when those stories started coming out, the response of the anti-abortion movement was this kind of conspiracy theory that pro-choice forces are 
making things more complicated than they are. They're exaggerating the, um, com- they're exaggerating the gravity, the, right? They're, they're basically, they are making doctors think that they can't intervene when really they can, because of course these, these laws are meant to protect women as well as babies. And that was always a ridiculous argument, but I feel like this shows just how ridiculous it is because this was someone who was seeking clarity. You know, it was, the, and the Center for Reproductive Rights, which represented her, is seeking clarity. And if they had gotten that clarity, if you had had, say, Ken Paxton, the attorney general of Texas, either abiding by the lower court ruling, not threatening hospitals that if they let this abortion go forward after the lower court ruling said it should be permitted, that he was going to process that they would face possible felony prosecutions. If if he had done that. It would strengthen this argument that they're actually, you know, that we might ban abortion, but that we actually do have um, good faith exemptions for people in emergency situations. And that we care about the women who are carrying these children in many cases. Right. And, and it's like, you know, and this this pregnancy, her pregnancy is doomed. Um, so it's, it's not a matter of kind of, you know, quote unquote, saving a baby. And so they could have, if they had wanted to, I think, um, made, made their abortion ban looked slightly more politically palatable, but they couldn't do that. You know, you saw him. It's true that some Republicans don't want to talk about this, but Ken Paxton seems happy to talk about this, right? Like he was willing to fight this woman and her doctor and her lawyer, like personally and to the bitter end. And for what? The personal the, the personal punishment directed at this woman by the state telling her that she wasn't effectively dying enough to, to to merit an abortion is unthinkable. The idea that a man would ever have to go to a panel of judges to get a vasectomy and then be denied it yeah. through the appeals process is just not something that would ever happen in America. And I think that there are women, men, people across this country who look at this and say, wow, Overturning Roe is one thing. This is another level of of cruelty, unusual cruelty here. I mean, I don't know how just setting aside the, the sort of human cost of this, the political cost of this seems extraordinary for Republicans. Right. And I think that it's important to realize that as much as this, I mean, what makes this case unique is not Kate Cox's medical circumstances. It's her unbelievable bravery in willing to go public and fight this in the middle of a catastrophe that a lot of other women in Texas and other states with abortion bans have faced. Um, The notion that there are these people out there who very much want these children who look like Republican voters, uh, cannot get them and have to go out of state or put themselves through this ordeal is just decidedly un-American. And that is what is unfolding in the state of Texas today. Michelle Goldberg, always writing so brilliantly about the horrible issues of our time. It's great to see you, my (laughs) friend. Thank you. Coming up, evangelicals in Iowa have propelled Donald Trump to a record lead with just over a month to go until the caucuses. We're going to discuss the evangelical alignment with the MAGA base. That's next. I had this sense that we were going to come to a Red Sea moment uh, in our Republican conference and and the country at large. And the Lord told me very clearly to prepare and be ready. Be ready for what? Okay, I don't know. We're coming to a Red Sea moment. What does that mean, Lord? Ultimately, 13 people ran for the for the post. Um, and, and the Lord kept telling me to wait, wait, wait. So I waited, I waited. And then at the end, when it came to the end, the Lord said, now, step forward. 
Mike Johnson, the most powerful elected Republican in the country last week, described his call to run for speaker. Johnson said that God had revealed to him that Johnson would be a Moses-like figure helping to lead the Republican Party and the country through a Red Sea moment, which is quite a call. As an evangelical, Johnson often uses scripture to promote policy goals. He has a history of questioning the separation of church and state. He essentially believes that the Bible is a governing document. And that puts him right in the mainstream of American evangelicals today who want to combine church teachings with policy. Now, a new NBC News Des Moines Register poll shows Donald Trump with 51 percent support in Iowa. It is the largest lead ever recorded by a Republican this close to the caucuses. And it is due entirely to Trump's support among a majority of evangelicals in that state. And that's different from eight years ago when Trump lost Iowa to Ted Cruz. Back then, Trump only had the support of one in five evangelical caucus goers. Tim Alberta writes in his new book, The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism, that for decades, evangelicals were skeptical of engaging in politics or straying from their central focus on the church's teachings. That all changed in the 1970s and 80s with the advent of Jerry Falwell and the moral majority. Falwell, Alberta writes, made a conscious decision to start packaging the cross with the flag. And others followed. Under Falwell's tutelage, Alberta writes, preachers who once prescribed total detachment from worldly affairs were now trafficking in Jeremiads of civilizational collapse and winning huge audiences of older conservative Christians who feared that the American apocalypse was nigh. In recent years, Trump's pugilism in the cultural wars has more evangelicals yearning for combat politics in the pulpit. To some evangelicals, Alberta writes, the purpose of the church is now to own the libs with an aggressive, identitarian conservatism. Tim Alberta has spent the last four years traveling the country reporting from inside the modern evangelical movement. And he joins me coming up next. Donald Trump is not what you would call a model Christian. He is not into asking for God's forgiveness. He could not name a single verse, any verse, when asked for his favorite Bible passage. He has openly mocked conservative religious leaders. But beyond his handing of the Supreme Court over to hardline conservatives, evangelicals continue to see Donald Trump as their defender. The Atlantic's Tim Alberta has a new book out, and in it he questions how and why the evangelical movement has flocked towards politicians like Trump. Politicians saw the pointlessness in talking about servanthood, about humility, about unity and peace and love for thy neighbor. The market for such a message had long since disappeared. The demand was for domination, and Republicans like Trump and DeSantis were happy to supply it. Their appeal to evangelicals had everything to do with acting like champions and nothing to do with acting like Christ. Joining me now is Tim Alberta, staff writer for The Atlantic and author of this new formidably excellent tome, The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Tim, thank you for being here. Congratulations on like it's it's so deeply reported and so well written and so top so of the moment. Um, thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, first, trace, if you will, how Trump effectively went from being like a punchline among um, religious conservatives to being 
their retribution, in his words, the, the, their hero. You know, I think 2016 was just, it was transactional for everyone involved, yeah. right? Uh, a lot of these white evangelical supporters who are now his staunchest allies, back then, I mean, eight years ago, it's like easy to forget now, but they were deeply skeptical of Trump. They were highly suspicious of Trump. I mean, he had to put Mike Pence on the ticket. He had to release a list of Supreme Court nominees. He had to promise to put pro-lifers on the bench. He had I to mean, have Leonard Leo like sitting on his shoulder. Truly. I mean, yes, like all of these gestures to sort of assuage those concerns and say, listen, I will deliver for you. I'm not one of you, but I will deliver for you. And, and, and the folks said, okay, you know, we don't like this guy. We don't trust this guy. But what choice do we have, mm -hmm. right? Hillary Clinton, it's a binary thing. We're going we're gonna to give him our votes in exchange for these policies. That transactional relationship has now morphed into something else entirely, yeah. where they do view him as this protector figure, this defender figure. And I think in many ways... Alex, it sort of boils down to this under siege mentality. You will hear it from Christians all over the country. Mm -hmm. This idea that Christianity is in the crosshairs, that their idealized Christian America is slipping away. And if the barbarians are at the gates, yeah. then we need a barbarian to fight for us, to, to defend our, our way of life. And, and that's how they've come to view Trump. I, I have to ask because, I mean, there was the same sort of uh, feeling from conservatives in the 1970s and to some degree the beginning of the 80s that they were under assault from this sort of liberal, dominant liberal majority, civil rights, equal rights amendment, desegregation, the end of school prayer. And this is the sort of environment in which Jerry Falwell and Paul Weirich create the moral majority, right? And Trump's sort of ascendance in, in the evangelical movement seems a more radical, much more radical version of that fight, right? Like, and I wonder whether that's a testament to Donald Trump just like juicing the evangelical movement and making it angrier and, and, and more keyed up or whether the movement itself was on its way, on, on its way down that path of desiring someone so aggressive, so, so much a pugilist. I think it's been a combination of those things. I mean, look, there's no question that steadily here over the last 50 years, much of the white evangelical movement has been conditioned more and more and more to expect not just um, not just to be in the culture wars, but to dominate the culture wars. And also, I would say, Alex, that the rules of engagement have sort of evolved, right? Where there was a time when folks who were, you know, part of the crusade with Falwell sort of recognized that, well, listen, at the end of the day, we are Christians, right? Like, we care about these conservative right. issues. We, we care about winning Republican elections, but we are, above all, Christians. Our citizenship is in heaven. We need to adhere to biblical teachings on the how. The how, Bible how, was how always still engage? on the front burner. Yeah, the Bible was, right, exactly. Like, you know, in other words, they were viewing politics through the prism of their faith instead of now, I think, at the heart of the problem is a lot of these folks are viewing their faith through the prism of politics, yeah. right? And this ends justify the means mentality that, look, Jerry Falwell Sr. in 1976, he launched this, this, this almost holy war against Jimmy Carter in part because, if you recall, Jimmy Carter had the temerity to give an interview to Playboy magazine yes. in 1976. And then you come full circle 50 years later. Jerry Falwell Jr., after vouching for Donald Trump in front of a ballroom full of evangelicals, they posed for a photo back at Trump Tower, thumbs up, in front of a Playboy magazine. Yeah. And that 50-year arc in many ways, like, it went from, you know, politics being downstream of mm -hmm. culture to culture and everything else being downstream of politics. That if we don't win these elections, if we don't dominate these culture wars, then nothing else matters. Um, you mentioned some inflection points, some crises domestically that sort of ratchet up the, the temperature and 
make Donald Trump ever more, even more positioned to be the sort of savior of the evangelical movement or evangelical voters. One of them is COVID. Can you talk about the way in which, I think in ways unseen to the broader public, the way in which that affected the evangelical community? Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, this ties into what we were just discussing. The seeds of the moral panic here were sown a long, long time ago. And specifically, if if you grew up in the evangelical world, as I did, you're very familiar with this Armageddon mindset, this rhetoric, this idea of an imminent clash between in America, between the good, God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians who want to preserve our Judeo-Christian heritage and those godless, evil secularists in the culture who want to weaponize government and come after us, that they're going to shut down our churches, they're going to persecute Christians, they're going to try to just abolish God from public life. And so if you've been stewing in, in that sort of uh, rhetoric and those, those warnings of the apocalypse, then suddenly COVID-19 arrives and you have these governors issuing shutdown orders, yeah. telling people that they can't go to church, even if it's just for a couple of weeks. And Alex, a lot of people in that setting say, yep, see, I told you. Yeah. We, we, we knew this day was coming. It was just a matter of time. And then really it became this question of, okay, are you going to stand your ground and fight? Fight for your beliefs, fight for your country, fight for your God, or are you going to be a coward? Are you going to back down? Are you going to get pushed around by the regime and by these evil secularists? And, 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 and you just can't overstate how deeply that divide grew and, and how it really fractured congregations around the country, including, you know, you have pastors who are like, check every box. They're conservative theologically, culturally, politically. The, the, these are not like progressive pastors in these churches, but they said, okay, I'll shut down my church public for a health. few weeks for public health to protect my congregants, love your neighbor, right? Try, just try to be Good. self-sacrificial. And they became Marxists. They became apostates overnight. I mean, they lost a quarter of their congregations just because they were not willing to sort of take on this brawler mentality. And you used the word earlier, like pugilistic, right? That is in many ways how the evangelical mind has been conditioned to expect something more than just biblical doctrine. It's now we need you to fight and we need you to fight against our enemies who are out for, you know, out to get us. Tim, it's an extraordinary book. Uh, The book is The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory. Thank you for writing it. Congratulations. That is our show for tonight. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.